millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. The Recollections of Rifleman Harris. Read by Stephen Davis. Chapter 6. After I had shot the French light infantryman and quenched my thirst from his calibash, finding he was quite dead, I proceeded to search him. Whilst I turned him about in the endeavour at finding the booty I felt pretty certain he had gathered from the slain, an officer of the 60th approached and accosted me. What? Looking for money, my lad? said he. Huh? I am, sir, I answered but I cannot discover where this fellow had hid his hoard. You knocked him over, my man, he said, in good style, and deserve something for the shot. Here, he continued, stooping down and feeling in the lining of the Frenchman's coat. This is the place where these rascals generally carry their coin. Rip up the lining of his coat, and then you search in his stock. I know them better than you seem to do. Thanking the officer for his courtesy, I proceeded to cut open the lining of his jacket with my sword bayonet and was quickly rewarded for my labour by finding a yellow silk purse wrapped up in an old black silk handkerchief. The purse contained several doubloons, three or four napoleons and a few dollars. Whilst I was counting the money, the value of which, except the dollars, I did not then know, I heard the bugle of the rifle sound out the assembly, so I touched my cap to the officer and returned towards them. The men were standing at ease, with the officers in front. As I approached them, Major Travers, who was in command of the four companies, called me to him. "'What have you got there, sir?' he said. "'Show me.' I handed him the purse, expecting a reprimand for my pains. He, however, only laughed as he examined it, and turning, showed it to his brother officers. "'You did that well, Harris,' he said. "'And I am sorry the purse is not better filled. Fall in.' In saying this, he handed me back the purse, and I joined my company. Soon afterwards, the roll being called, we were all ordered to lie down and gain a little rest after our day's work. We lay as we had stood, and ranked upon the field, and in a few minutes, I dare say, one half of that green line, overwearied with their exertions, 
were asleep upon the ground they had so short a time before being fighting on. After we had lain for some little time, I saw several men strolling about the fields, so I again quietly rose with one or two others of the rifles, and once more looked about me to see what I could pick up amongst the slain. I had rambled some distance when I saw a French officer running towards me with all his might, pursued by at least half a dozen horsemen. The Frenchman was a tall, handsome-looking man, dressed in a blue uniform. He ran as swiftly as a wild Indian, turning and doubling like a hare. I held up my hand and called to his pursuers not to hurt him. One of the horsemen, however, cut him down with a desperate blow when close beside me, and the next, wheeling round, as he leaned from his saddle, passed his sword through the body. I am sorry to say there was an English dragoon amongst these scoundrels. The rest, by their dress, I judged to be Portuguese cavalry. Whether the Frenchman thus slaughtered was a prisoner trying to escape, or what was the cause of this cold-blooded piece of cruelty, I know not, as the horseman immediately galloped off without a word of explanation, and feeling quite disgusted with the scene I witnessed, I returned to my comrades, and again throwing myself down, was soon as fast asleep as any there. I might have slept perhaps half an hour, when, the bugles again sounding, we all started to our feet, and were soon afterwards marched off to form the pickets. Towards evening, I was posted upon a rising ground, amongst a clump of tall trees. There seemed to have been a sharp skirmish here, as three Frenchmen were lying dead amongst the long grass upon the spot where I was standing. As I threw my rifle to my shoulder and walked past them on my beat, I observed they had been plundered, and their haversacks having been torn off, some of the contents were scattered about. Among other things, a small quantity of biscuit lay at my feet. War is a sad blunter of my feelings. I have often thought since those days. The contemplation of three ghastly bodies in this lonely spot failed then in making the slightest impression upon me. The sight had become, even in the short time I had been engaged in the trade, but too familiar. The biscuits, however, which lay in my path, I thought a blessed windfall, and, stooping, I gathered them up, scraped off the blood with which they were sprinkled with my bayonet, and ate them ravenously. As I stood at the edge of the little plantation, and looked over to the enemy's side, I observed a large body of their cavalry drawn up. I love to call to mind the most trivial circumstances which I observed whilst in the peninsula, and I remember many things of small importance in themselves, and, indeed, hardly remarked at the time as forcibly as if they had been branded into my memory. I recollect keeping a very sharp lookout at the French cavalry on that evening, for I thought them rather too near to my post, and whilst I stood beneath one of the tall trees and watched them, it commenced raining, and they were ordered to cloak up. General Kellerman and his trumpets at this moment returned to the French side, and soon afterwards, the pickets being withdrawn, I was relieved from my post, and marched off to join my company. A truce, I now found, had been concluded, and we lay down to rest for the night. Next day was devoted to the duty of burying the dead and assisting the wounded, carrying the latter off the field into a churchyard near Vimero. The scene in this churchyard was somewhat singular. Two long tables had been procured from some houses near and were placed end to end amongst the graves, and upon them were laid the men whose limbs it was found necessary to amputate. Both French and English were constantly lifted on and off these tables. 
As soon as the operation was performed upon one lot, they were carried off, and those in waiting hoisted up. The surgeons with their sleeves turned up, and their hands and arms covered with blood, looking like butchers in the shambles. I saw, as I passed at least twenty legs lying on the ground, many of them being clothed in the long black gaiters then worn by the infantry of the line. The surgeons had plenty of work on hand that day, and, not having time to take off the clothes of the wounded, they merely ripped the seams and turned the cloth back, proceeding with the operation as fast as they could. Many of the wounded came straggling into this churchyard in search of assistance by themselves. I saw one man, faint with the loss of blood, staggering along and turned to assist him. He was severely wounded in the head, his face being completely encrusted with the blood which had flowed during the night and had now dried. One eyeball was knocked out of the socket and hung down upon his cheek. Another man I observed who had been brought in and propped against the grave mound. He seemed very badly hurt. The men who had carried him into the churchyard had placed his cap filled with fragments of biscuit close beside his head and as he lay he occasionally turned his mouth towards it and got hold of a piece of biscuit and munched it. As I was about to leave the churchyard, Dr Ridgway, one of the surgeons, called me back to assist in holding a man he was endeavouring to operate upon. Come with me and help with this man, he said, or I shall be all day cutting a ball out of his shoulder. The patient's name was Doubter, an Irishman. He disliked the doctor's efforts and writhed and twisted so much during the operation that it was with difficulty that Dr Ridgway could perform it. He found it necessary to cut very deep, and Doubter made a terrible outcry at every fresh incision. "'Oh, Doctor, dear,' he said, "'it's murdering you are. Blood hands. I shall die. I shall die. For the love of the Lord, don't cut me all to pieces.' Data was not altogether wrong. Although he survived the operation, he died shortly afterwards from the effects of his wounds. After I was dismissed by the doctor, I gladly left the churchyard and, returning to the hill where the rifles were bivouacked, was soon afterwards ordered by Captain Leach to get my shoemaking implements from my pack and commence work upon the men's waist belts, many of which had been much torn during the action, and I continued to be so employed as long as there was light enough to see by, after which I lay down amongst them to rest. We lay that night upon the hillside, many of the men breaking boughs from the trees at hand in order to make a slight cover for their heads, the tents not being then with us. I remember it was intensely cold during that night, so much so that I could not sleep, but lay with my feet drawn up as if I had had a fit of the cramp. I was indeed compelled more than once during the night to get up and run about in order to put warmth into my benumbed limbs. Three days' march brought us without the walls of Lisbon, where we halted, and the tents soon after coming up were encamped. The second day after our arrival, as I was lying in my tent, Captain Leach and Lieutenant Cox entering it desired me to rise and follow them. We took the way towards the town and wandered about the streets for some time. Both of these officers were good-looking men and in their rifle uniform with the police hanging from one shoulder and Hessian boots then worn, cut a dash, I thought, in the streets of Lisbon. There were no other English that I could observe in the town this day, and, what with the glances of the black-eyed lasses from the windows and the sulky scowl of the French sentinels as we passed, I thought we caused quite a sensation in the place. Indeed, I believe we were the first men that entered Lisbon after the arrival of the army without its walls. 
After some little time had been spent in looking about us, the officers spied a hotel, and entering it, walked upstairs. I myself entered a sort of tap room below, and found myself in the midst of a large assemblage of French soldiers, many of whom were wounded, some with their arms hanging in scarves, and others bandaged about the head and face. In short, one half of them appeared to carry tokens of our bullets of a few days before. At first they appeared inclined to be civil to me, although my appearance amongst them caused rather a sensation. I observed, and three or four rose from their seats, and with all the swagger of Frenchmen strutted up, and offered to drink with me. I was young then, and full of the natural animosity against the enemy, so prevalent with John Ball. I hated the French with a deadly hatred, and refused to drink with them, showing by my discourteous manner the feelings I entertained, so they turned off with a sacre and a bah, and, reseating themselves, commenced talking at an amazing rate all at once, and no man listening to his fellow. Although I could not comprehend a word of the language that they uttered, I could pretty well make out that I myself was a subject of the noise around me. My discourteous manners had offended them, and they seemed to be working themselves up into a violent rage. One fellow, in particular, wearing an immense pair of mustachios, and his coat loosely thrown over his shoulders, his arm being wounded, and in a sling, rose up, and he attempted to harangue the company. He pointed to the pouch at my waist, which contained my bullets, then to my rifle, and then to his own wounded arm, and I began to suspect that I should probably get more than I'd bargained for on entering the house, unless I speedily managed to remove myself out of it, when, luckily, Lieutenant Cox and Captain Leach entered the room in search of me. They saw at a glance the state of affairs, and instantly ordered me to quit the room, themselves covering my retreat. "'Better take care, Harris,' said the captain. "'How you get amongst such a party as that again? "'You do not understand their language. "'I do. "'They meant mischief.' "'After progressing through various streets, "'buying leather and implements for mending our shoes, "'the two officers desired me again to await them in the street "'and entered a shop close at hand. "'The day was hot, and a wine house being directly opposite me, "'after waiting some time, I crossed over and, going in, called for a cup of wine. Here I again found myself in the midst of a large assemblage of French soldiers, and once more an object of curiosity and dislike. Nevertheless, I paid for my wine and drank it, regardless of the clamour my intrusion had called again forth. The host, however, seemed to understand his guests better than I did, and evidently anticipated mischief. After in vain trying to make me understand him, he suddenly jumped from behind his bar, and seizing me by the shoulder without ceremony, thrust me into the street. I found the two officers looking anxiously for me when I got out, and not quite easy at my disappearance. I however excused myself by pleading the heat of the day, and my anxiety to taste the good wines of Lisbon, and together we left the town with our purchases, and reached the camp. Next morning, Captain Leach again entered my tent, and desired me to pick out three good workmen from the company, take them into the town, and seek out a shoemaker's shop as near the camp as possible. "'You must leave to work in the first shop you can find,' he said. "'As we have a long march before us, and many of the men without shoes to their feet.' Accordingly, we carried with us three small sacks filled with old boots and shoes, and, entering Lisbon, went into the first shoemaker's shop that we saw. Here, I endeavoured in vain 
to make myself understood for some time. There was a master shoemaker at work and three men. They did not seem to like our intrusion and looked very sulky, asking us various questions, which I could not understand. The only words I could at all comprehend being Buenas Irlandas, Bruto Inglesa, I thought, considering we had come out so far to fight their battles for them, that this was the north side of civil, so I signed to the men, and, by way of explanation of our wishes, and in order to cut the matter short, they emptied the three sackfuls of boots and shoes upon the floor. We now explained what we would be at. The boots and shoes of the rifles spoke for themselves, and, seating ourselves, we commenced work forthwith. In this way, we continued employed whilst the army lay near Lisbon, every morning coming into work and returning to the camp every night to sleep. After we had been there several days, our landlord's family had the curiosity to come occasionally and take a peep at us. My companions were noisy, good-tempered, jolly fellows, and usually sang all the time they hammered and strapped. The mistress of the house, seeing I was the head man, occasionally came and sat down beside me as I worked, bringing her daughter, a very handsome dark-eyed Spanish girl, and as a matter of course, I fell in love. We soon became better acquainted, and the mother, one evening, after having sat and chatted to me, serving me with wine and other good things, on my rising to leave the shop, made a signal for me to follow her. She had managed to pick up a little English, and I knew a few words of the Spanish language, so that we could pretty well comprehend each other's meaning. And, after leading me into their sitting room, she brought a handsome daughter, and, without more circumstance, offered her to me for a wife. The offer was a tempting one, but the conditions of the marriage made it impossible for me to comply, since I was to change my religion and desert my colours. The old dame proposed to conceal me, effectually, when the army marched, after which I was to live like a gentleman with the handsome Maria for a wife. It was hard to refuse so tempting an offer, with the pretty Maria endeavouring to back her mother's proposal. I, however, made them understand that nothing would tempt me to desert, and, promising to try and get my discharge when I returned to England, protested I would then return and marry Maria. Soon after this, the army marched for Spain. The rifles paraded in the very street where the shop I had so long worked at was situated, and I saw Maria at the window. As our bugles struck up, she waved a handkerchief. I returned the salute, and in half an hour had forgotten all about her. So much for a soldier's love. Our marches were now long and fatiguing. I do not know how many miles we traversed before we reached Almeida, which I was told was the last town in Portugal. Some of my companions said we had come 500 miles since we left Lisbon. We now passed to the left and bade adieu to Portugal forever. We had fought and conquered and felt elated accordingly. Spain was before us and every man in the rifle seemed only anxious to get a rap at the French once again. On and on we toiled till we reached Salamanca. I love to remember the appearance of the army as we moved along at this time. It was a glorious sight to see our colours spread in these fields. The men seemed invincible. Nothing, I thought, could have beaten them. We had some of as desperate fellows in the rifles alone as had ever toiled under the burning sun of an enemy's country in any age. But I lived to see the hardship and toil lay hundreds of them low before a few weeks were over our heads. At Salamanca, we stayed seven or eight days, and during this time, 
the shoemakers were again wanted, and I worked with my men incessantly during their short halt. Our marches were now still more arduous. Fourteen leagues a day, I have heard the men say. We accomplished before we halted, and many of us were found out and floored in the road. It became everyone for himself. The load we carried was too great, and we staggered on, looking neither to the right nor the left. If a man dropped, he found it no easy matter to get up again, unless his companion assisted him, and many died of fatigue. As for myself, I was nearly floored by this march, and on reaching a town one night, which I think was called Zamora, I fell at the entrance of the first street we came to. The sight left my eyes, my brain reeled, and I came down like a dead man. When I recovered my senses, I remember that I crawled into a door I found open, and, being too ill to rise, lay for some time in the passage, unregarded by the inhabitants. After I'd left the house I've alluded to in the account of the Battle of Relika, I walked a few paces onwards, when I saw some of the rifles lying about and resting. I laid myself down amongst them, for I felt fatigued. A great many of the French skirmishers were lying dead just about this spot. I recollect that they had long white frock coats on, with the eagle in front of their caps. This was one of the places from which they had greatly annoyed us, and, to judge from the appearance of the dead and wounded strewed about, we had returned the compliment pretty handsomely. I lay upon my back, and resting upon my knapsack, examined the enemy in the distance. Their lines were about a couple of miles off. Here they remained stationary, I should think, until near sunset, when they began to vanish, beating towards Vimero, where we had at them again. Whilst I lay watching them, I observed a dead man directly opposite me, to whose singular appearance had not at first caught my eye. He was lying on his side, almost some burnt-up bushes, and whether the heat of the firing here had set these bushes on fire, or from whatever cause they had been ignited, I cannot take upon me to say, but certain it is, for several of my companions saw it as well as myself, and cracked many a joke upon the poor fellow's appearance, that this man, whom we guessed to have been French, was as completely roasted as if he had been spitted before a good kitchen fire. He was burnt quite brown, every stitch of clothes was singed off, and he was drawn all up like a dried frog. I called the attention of one or two men near me, and we examined him, turning him about with our rifles with no little curiosity. I remember now, with some surprise, that the miserable fate of this poor fellow called forth from us very little sympathy, but seemed only to be a subject of mirth. I remember there was an officer named, I think, Cardo with the rifles. He was a great bow, but although rather effeminate and ladylike in manners, so much so as to be remarked by the whole regiment at that time, yet he was found to be a most gallant officer when we were engaged with the enemy in the field. He was killed whilst fighting bravely in the Pyrenees, and amongst other jewellery he wore, he had a ring on his finger worth 150 guineas. As he lay dead on the field, one of our riflemen, named Orr, observed the sparkling gem and immediately resolved to make prize of it. The ring, however, was so firmly fixed that Orr could not draw it from the finger, and whipping out his knife, cut the finger off by the joint. After the battle, Orr offered the ring for sale amongst the officers, and in an inquiry, the manner in which he had obtained it transpired. Orr was in consequence tried by court-martial, and sentenced to receive five hundred lashes, which sentence was carried into execution. A youth joined the rifles soon after I myself put on the green jacket, 
whose name was Medley. He was but a small chap, being under the standard one inch, but our officers thought he promised fair to become a tall fellow, and he was, accordingly, not rejected. Medley did not deceive them, for, on the day he first joined the rifles, he was five feet one inch in height, and on the day he was killed, at Barossa, he was exactly six feet one. He was celebrated for being the greatest grumbler, the greatest eater, and the most quarrelsome fellow in the whole corps. I remember he cut a most desperate figure in the retreat to Corunia, for there he had had enough to bear both of fatigue and hunger, and very little of either of those disagreeables which would make him extremely bad company at any time. It was dangerous, too, to bid him hold his tongue sometimes, for he had picked up so amongst us since he was only five feet one, and grown so bony as well as tall, that he would challenge and thrash any man in the corps. Corunia, however, thought it could not stop his growling, took the desire of boxing quite out of him, and he sprawled, scrambled, and swore, till he somehow got through that business. If General Crawford could have heard but the twentieth part of what I heard him utter about him on that retreat, I think he would have cut Medley in half. He was, as I said, a capital feeder, and his own allowance was not half enough to satisfy his cravings, so that he often got some of his comrades to help him out with a portion of theirs. He was my comrade for about two years, and, as I was a shoemaker, I often had food to give him. Indeed, it was highly necessary either to give him what I had from my own allowance, or find some provision elsewhere, for he was the most cross-gained fellow, if his belly was not filled, that we ever had amongst us. He was killed at Barossa, as I said, and he carried his ill-humour with him to the very last hour of his life, for, being knocked over by a musket ball in the thigh, he was spoken to as he lay by some of his comrades, who, asking if they should assist him and carry him to the rear, he told them to go and be dead, and, bidding them mind their own business, abused them till they passed on and left him. I was told this last anecdote of him by the very men who had spoken to him, and got this blessing as he lay. We had another tall fellow in the four companies of rifles who were in that retreat. His name was Thomas Higgins. He was six feet one and a half, and quite as lank and bonely as Medley. He also was an ill-tempered fellow, but nothing to compare with him either in eating or grumbling. The tall men, I've often observed, bore fatigue much worse than the short ones, and Higgins, amongst others of the big uns, was dreadfully put to it to keep on. We lost him entirely when about half through this business, I remember, for, during a short halt of about ten minutes, he was reprimanded by one of our officers for the slovenly state of his clothing and accoutrements, his dress almost dropping from his lower limbs, and his knapsack hanging by a strap or two down about his waist. Higgins did not take it at all kind being quarrelled with at such a time, and, uttering sundry impertinences, desired to know if they were ever to be allowed to halt any more, adding that he did not see very well how he was meant to be smart after what he had already gone through. The officer spoke to one of the sergeants upon this, and bid him remember, if they got to the journey's end, to give Higgins an extra guard for his behaviour. Oh then, down me, says Higgins, if I ever take it. And, turning about, as we all moved on to the word of march, he marched off in the contrary direction, and we never either saw or heard of him from that hour, and it was supposed afterwards, amongst us, they had either perished alone in the night or joined the French, who were at our heels.
These were the two tallest men in the four companies of rifles, and both were in the company I belonged to. Higgins was the right hand, and Medley the left hand man. It was about the year 1807 or 8 that a man volunteered from the Nottingham militia into the rifles. After receiving the half of his bounty, he thought that was quite as much as would serve him of the rifle regiment, and so he declined to serve them in return, and accordingly made off, without joining them at all at that time. Four years afterwards, he was discovered by the very sergeant of the Nottingham militia, who belonged to his own company, when he volunteered from them into our corps. This same sergeant was then himself recruiting, and fell in with his former comrade in some town, of which I forget the name, but it was in Yorkshire, the man, whose name also I have forgotten now, was then grown very fat, and was, likewise, as much altered in dress as in condition, being clad in the habiliments of a respectable and comfortable farmer of that delightful country. The sergeant, however, had a sharp eye, and penetrated both through the disguise of his then calling, and also even his portly look failed in throwing him off the scent. In fact, he went warily to work, made his inquiries, compared his notes, allowed for the time and circumstances, and, notwithstanding the respectability and reputed worth of our farmer, arrested him forthwith as a deserter from the 95th. From Yorkshire, he was marched a prisoner to Hythe in Kent, and I remember seeing him brought in, dressed as he was apprehended, and handcuffed, and guarded by a corporal and three or four men. He was, as I said, clad in his farmer's dress, and that it was which made myself and others, who happened to be out, more especially regard him, for, although it was no great sight at that time to see a deserter brought along, yet it was not often we beheld one, so apparently well off and respectable looking in such a situation. In fact, the Yorkshire farmer made a great talk amongst us, and we pitied him much. No man in his present circumstances could, I should think, feel more acutely, and he dwindled perceptibly in bulk every day, till he was brought to trial. During his confinement, he had written to the colonel of the regiment, offering him £60 to let him off, but I believe he never at that time got any reply to his offer, and, being tried, was sentenced to receive 700 lashes. When he was brought into the hollow square to receive his punishment, I remember the anxiety amongst us was twice as great as on an ordinary occasion of the sort. He did not seem a man who was afraid of the lash, as regarded the pain of its infliction, but the shame of it, considering the situation he had attained to, was apparently the thing that hurt him the most. Even now, although fallen away, he was a jolly and portly looking man, though his flesh seemed to hang about him from the quickness he had been reduced in bulk by long marches and anxiety of the mind. He addressed a few words to the colonel in a firm and manly tone and begged him to consider the situation and his circumstances and that he was the husband of a respectable woman and father of several children. But, however, it was not possible for the colonel to forgive him at that time and he was ordered to be quick and prepare. The farmer accordingly stripped and was tied up. The colonel addressed him and referred to the offer he had made him when in confinement, which he told him, had much aggravated the crime, as supposing him, the colonel, capable of selling his honour for £60. So the farmer received his 700 lashes that day, and never uttered a word of complaint during the infliction, except that, as he sometimes turned his head, and looked after the can of water, he would say, Oh, poor Tom, poor Tom, 
I little thought ever to come to this. I remember, after the 400, the colonel asked him if he would sign his banishment, telling him it was to send him to another regiment, which was in foreign parts, but the farmer refused to do so, and the punishment went on. I recollect, too, that the doctor desired the drummer to lay the lash on the other shoulder, and the farmer received the whole sentence, as he well deserved. In a week or more, he was to be seen walking in the barrack square, but he avoided the society of the men, and in about two or three days afterwards, he was missing altogether, having taken an opportunity to escape, and we never again either heard of or saw the Yorkshire farmer. There was another agriculturalist who, I remember, was in the rifles with me. He was the eldest son of a gentleman farmer who resided in Yorkshire, and as handsome a youth as I think I ever beheld, but he was one of the wildest chaps, perhaps, in the whole county, and, although he was not above four or five and twenty, his parents had found it out to their cost. In one of his sprees, happening to fall in with Sergeant Sugden of our corps, nothing would content him, but he must enlist. Sugden, you may easily conceive, was not adverse to indulge such a perspiring hero, and very soon had him for a recruit. Although there must have been considerable difference in the style of life amongst us to what he had been used to, yet he appeared no wise displeased with the change. To be sure, he was rather too lively a bird at times, and, having plenty of money, occasionally got himself into trouble, but nothing particularly disagreeable happened, and although he was very much liked in the corps, in which he went by the name of Gentleman Farmer, just before a detachment of rifles started for Portugal, a gentleman rode into the barrack square and inquired of some of the men for this young spark, whose name I cannot now remember. The meeting was not very amicable one, for the newcomer was a gentleman farmer's brother, who upbraided him with his conduct in enlisting and told of the anxiety and sorrow this new freak had caused at home. After they had somewhat mollified their quarrel, they sought an interview with our commanding officer, and the brother immediately, in the name of the parents, offered any reasonable sum the colonel chose to name, so he would but grant the gentleman farmer a discharge. The colonel, however, was not willing to lose him, and refused at that time to grant the request. He is a wild and untamed spirit, he said, and as he is just now under orders for foreign service, he had better go. Let him have a year of that fun, it will do his complaint good, and, if he lives, we shall see him. I hope return an improved man. The newcomer, therefore, was fain to put up with this answer, and next morning returned home to his parents, apparently much cut up and disappointed at his ill success. Accordingly, the gentleman farmer embarked for Portugal, and was soon after witness of a wilder scene of discord and horror than, I dare say, even his hare-brained ideas quite contemplated when he enlisted for a soldier. In short, he took his first lesson of actual warfare at the siege of Badajoz, and, entering with heart and soul into the breach, his head was dashed into a hundred pieces by a cannonball. Thomas Mayberry was a man well known at that time in the rifles. He was a sergeant in my day, and was very much thought of by our officers as a very active and useful non-commissioned officer, being considered, up to the time of his committing the slight mistake, I shall have to tell of, one of the most honest men in the army. With the men, he was not altogether so well liked, as he was considered rather too blusterous and tyrannical. Whilst in the town of Hythe, he got the fingering of about £200, 
for the purpose of paying for necessaries purchased for the men of his company, and which £200 he had, in a very short space of time, managed to make away with and lose in the society of a party of gamblers, who at that time infested the town of Hythe. Captain Hart, who then commanded the company Mayberry belonged to, was not a little thunderstruck, some little time after, of finding that the several tradesmen who furnished the articles for the men had never been settled with, and, sending for Mayberry, discovered the delinquency. Mayberry was a prisoner in a moment, and Captain Hart was as much astonished as if his own father had committed a fraud. So well and so much was Mayberry thought of. He was brought to court-martial, together with two other men, whom he had seduced to become partners in his gambling transactions, and, on the inquiry, it was further discovered that he had been in the habit of cheating the men of his own company out of a farthing a week each for the last ten months. That was, perhaps, the worst thing against him. He was sentenced to receive 700 lashes. Corporal Morrison and Patrick Devine, his two participators in his roguery, got, I remember, the former three, and the latter, 100, awarded to them. When a square was formed for punishment, and the three were brought out, it was necessary to check the men of the regiment, or they would have hooted and hissed them on the parade. I recollect also that there was a civilian of the name Gilbert, whom Mayberry had defrauded, and he had inquired at the time of his punishment, and he was present in the rear during the infliction. Having expressed to some of Maybury's companions that he was content to lose the money, so that he saw the fellow well flogged, a pretty good proof that, when their own interests are nearly concerned, your civilian has no objection to even be an eyewitness of the infliction of the lash, about which there has been lately such an outcry. It is, indeed, no uncommon thing nowadays, to see a man who has committed crimes which have caused him to receive the execrations of his sometimes companion in arms, as he has been drummed out of the corps, received by a host of folks without the barrack gates, and taken to their bosoms as an object of commiseration. When Mabry was tied up, he was offered, as was then customary, the option of his banishment, but he refused it, notwithstanding considerable entreaty was made to him by his two comrades to accept it as, by so doing, they thought they all would escape the lash. However, Maybury decided to take the 700 and bore the sentence without a murmur. Not so the two others. Morrison screamed and struggled so much that he capsized the triangle and all came sprawling together so that he was obliged to be held by a man at each side. Devine came last. He was rather an effeminate-looking man and the colonel rode round and told him he lamented being obliged to break so fair a skin, but he must do his duty. However, as he had borne a good character, and was not so much to blame as the other two, he let him down after five and twenty. Mayberry, after this, was much scouted by his fellow soldiers, and also all thought of by the officers, and, on a detachment being sent to Portugal, he volunteered for the expedition. Captain Hart, however, would fain have declined taking him, as he had so bad of an opinion of him after this affair, but Maybury showed himself so desirous of going, that at last he consented, and took him. At the siege of Badajoz, Maybury wiped off, in a measure, all his former ill-conduct. He was seen by Captain Hart to behave so bravely in the breach, that he commended him on the spot. "'Well done, Maybury,' said he. You have gave this day once enough to obliterate your disgrace, and, if we live, 
I will endeavour to restore you to your former rank. Go now to the rear. You've done enough for one day. Maybury, however, refused to retire, although covered with wounds, for he was known to have killed seven with his own hands, with his rifle sword bayonet. Now, going to the rear for me, he said, I'll restore myself to my comrade's opinion and make a finish of myself altogether. He accordingly continued in the front of all, till at last he was seen to be cut down in the clear light of the fireballs by a tremendous sword cut which cleft his skull almost in twain. Morrison, I heard, also died at that siege. Devine returned safe home and died of fatigue at Formoy. It has been said, I have heard, by officers of high rank in the army of the peninsula, that there never were such a set of devil-may-care fellows and so completely up to their business as the 95th. It would be invidious to make a distinction or talk of any one regiment being better or more serviceable than another, but the rifles were generally in the mess before the others began, and also the last to leave off. It was their business to be so, and if they did their work well, so did every other British corps engage in that country. At least, I never either heard or saw to the contrary. There was perhaps as intelligent and talented a set of men amongst us as ever carried a weapon in any country. They seemed at times to need but a glance at what was going on to know all about it, why and wherefore. I remember seeing the Duke of Wellington during the Battle of Vimero, and in these days, when so much anxiety is displayed to catch even a glance of that great man's figure as he gallops along the streets of London, it seems gratifying to me to recollect seeing him in his proper element, the raging and bloody field, and I frequently tax my mind to remember each action and look I caught of him at the time. I remember seeing the great duke take his hat off in the field of Vimero, and methinks it is something to have seen that wonderful man even do so commonplace a thing as lift his hat to another officer in the battlefield. We were generally enveloped in smoke and fire, and sometimes unable to distinguish or make remarks upon what was going on around, whilst we blazed away at our opponents. But occasionally we found time to make our comments upon the game we were playing. Two or three fellows near me were observing what was going on just in the rear, and I heard one man remark, here comes Sir Arthur and his staff, upon which I also looked back and caught sight of him just meeting with two other officers of high rank. They all uncovered as they met, and I saw the Duke, as I said, then Sir Arthur Wellesley, take off his hat and bow to the other two. The names of the newcomers, however, they were learnt, whether from some of the men who had seen them before, or picked up on the instant from an officer, seemed to be well known, as well as the business they were engaged in talking of for it ran along the line from one to the other that Sir Hugh Dalrymple and Sir Harry Burrard were about to take the command instead of Sir Arthur Wellesley, a circumstance which, of course, could only be a random guess amongst these fellows at the moment. The intelligence of these men was indeed very great, and I could relate instances of their recklessness and management which would amuse the reader much. I remember a fellow named Jackman, getting close up to the walls at Flushing and working a hole in the earth with his sword into which he laid himself and remained there alone, spite of all the efforts of the enemy and the various missiles to dislodge him. He was known, thus earthed, to have killed, with the utmost coolness and deliberation, eleven of the French artillerymen as they worked at their guns 
As fast as they relieved each fallen comrade, did Jackman pick them off, after which he took to his heels and got safe back to his comrades. There were three brothers in the rifles named Hart, John, Mike and Peter, and three more perfectly reckless fellows perhaps never existed. Nothing ever escaped their notice, and they would create the greatest fun and laughter, even when advancing under the hottest fire of the enemy, and their comrades being shot down beside them. I remember Lieutenant Malloy, who was himself as fine a soldier as ever stepped, and as full of life in the midst of death as these hearts, being obliged to check them at Vimero. Darn you, he said to them, keep back and get under cover. What do you think you're fighting here with your fists? You're running out into the teeth of the French? I never saw those three men, to appearance, the least worse for hard work during the time we remained in Portugal. They could run like deer, and were indeed formed by nature and disposition for the hardships, difficulties and privations of the sort of life we then led. They were, however, all three pretty well done up during the retreat to Coruña, though, even in that dreadful business, their light-heartedness and attempts at fun served to keep up the spirits of many a man who would else have been broken-hearted before the English shipping appeared in sight. Nothing, indeed, but that grave of battalions, that unwholesome fen, flushing, could have broken the spirits of three such soldiers as John, Mike and Peter Hart. A few weeks, however, of that country sufficed to quiet them forevermore. One, I remember, died, and the other two, although they lived to return, were never worth a rush afterwards, but, like myself, remain living examples of what climate can bring even a constitution and body framed as if of iron to. Nothing, I suppose, could exceed the dreadful appearance we cut on the occasion of the disembarkation from Coruña, and the inhabitants of Portsmouth, who had assembled in some numbers to see us land, were horror-stricken with the sight of their countrymen and relatives returning to England in such a ghastly state, whilst the three hearts, with feet swathed in bloody rags, clothing that hardly covered their nakedness, accoutrements in shreds, beards covering their faces, eyes dimmed with toil, for some were even blind, arms nearly useless to those who had them left, the rifles being encrusted with rust and the swords glued to the scabbard. These three brothers, I say, for I heard them myself as they hobbled up the beach, were making all sorts of remarks and cracking their jokes upon the misery of our situation and the appearance they themselves cut. I recollect seeing at this time an affecting instance of female affection displayed. One of our officers, whose name I will not mention, and who was much beloved by us all, observed his wife waiting for him on the beach as he disembarked from the boat. He met her as she rushed into the sea to embrace him, and they were locked in each other's arms before they touched the dry land. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 